There was a lot of problems in the world. And there's a lot of really smart solutions. Let's do those for very little money. If we spend $35 billion, we can save 4.2 million lives each and every year. And we can make the poor world $1.1 trillion richer each and every year. How cool is that? So yes, this is absolutely about saying this is a problem, but also lots and lots of solutions. Some of these solutions are pretty ineffective. Some of them are amazingly effective. Let's do the effective ones first. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn, welcome to the show. Brendan, it's great to be here. So Bjorn, it's great to have you back on. It's always a pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, and I let's just jump straight into your new book, which is called Best Things First, the 12 most efficient solutions for the world's poorest and our global SDG promises. It's a fascinating book. I recommend it to all listeners. It's full of information, sometimes depressing information about the problems facing the poorer part of the world, but also full of really interesting, positive, costed solutions for how we might solve some of those problems. So it's a very spirited read, and I found it an inspiring book. Um, and essentially what you do in the book is you identify 12 of the most efficient policies that you think will dramatically improve the lives of people in the poorer half of the world. And you say that for around $35 billion a year, we can implement these 12 ideas and save millions of lives, reduce death from disease, reduce poverty, and so on. So I want to dig down into some of those policy proposals and talk about how workable they are, why you pick them, why you think they're the most important. But but to kick off, I want to ask you why you felt you needed to write this book. Why at this moment you thought it was important to come up with something very goal-orientated, which actually says, look, let's do these following things and life will improve as a consequence. Thanks a lot, first of all, for inviting me, and, and thanks for giving a great summary of the book. Uh, uh, and and so, so the, the fundamental problem uh, that this book is trying to address, and that's also in the subtitle that most people probably don't know, is uh, that the, the whole world, so the UK, the US, all of the European countries, every country in the world, has promised to do what's called the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Uh, so we have 15 years to do them, and we've literally promised everything to everyone everywhere all the time, which, uh, in parentheses, not a good idea. Uh, you can't promise realistically to do everything. So we literally promised we're going to fix poverty, we're going to fi fix hunger, uh, we're going to fix uh, a war, corruption, global warming, uh, we're also going to fix education, and oh, we're also going to get organic apples and, and uh, community gardens to everyone, and everything in between. And look, this is not bad. Uh, in an ideal world, we'd love to fix everything, but we don't live in that world. So fixing this would probably cost, cost in the order of 10 to 15 trillion dollars more each and every year. <laughs> that's just that's just money we don't have. Uh, just to give you a sense of proportion, that's the same amount that we would need to spend extra of the whole world's tax intake last year. And we'd have to spend that extra every year. So we'd have to stop everything we're doing right now and just spend it on these additional problems. Of course, that's not going to happen. So what we tried to do is to say, look, if we're not going to manage to do everything, so we're half time, 
at our promises. We, they go from 2016 to 2030, but we're nowhere near halfway to doing our promises. So if we're not going to manage to do everything, why don't we do the smartest stuff first? So that's really what this is. It's, a tr- it's an effort to try to identify where can you spend money and do the very most good first. Now, again, it'd be nice to fix uh, you know, uh, better libraries in, in the rich world, or you know, there are lots of other issues that you can come up with. But if you are going to spend an extra pound or dollar, euro or rupee or whatever your currency is, it's very likely that you can do a lot more good for the world's poor, uh, both because they have much bigger problems and because many of their problems are much cheaper to fix. So what we started off doing is just simply saying, all right, Look, if you're going to spend extra money, let's first spend them for the world's poor, because that's where you can make immense amounts of good at fairly low cost. So the the 12 things that you talk about and that I'm sure we'll delve into um, is basically these are the 12 that when you look with an economist point of view, so you simply look at where can we spend money and do amazing good. And good is estimated in the way that it uh, delivers economic benefits. That is that people become richer, they become more productive, they don't lose so much money, they become socially better off. That is, they don't die, they don't get sick, they don't lose their parents or lose their kids, and that they get environmentally better off. That is, they have you know, better wetlands, fewer uh, CO2 emissions, all these different things. If you try to weigh all that together, and, uh, and there's a lot of literature that shows you how, how to do that, you can basically say for $1, and I'm going to just say dollar because that's sort of the international unit, but it's equal for one pound or one euro, whatever you want to use it. For, if you spend $1, you can do this many dollars of good, which is a shorthand of saying more economic benefits, fewer people dying, better environment. Right. So that's a very useful uh, starting point for the discussion. And uh, before we get into your goals, your policy, your 12 efficient policy ideas, uh, you mentioned the the sustainable development goals from the United Nations and the, the problem with them and the fact that, as you say, you have a chapter called Promises, Promises, and they promise everything, really, uh, apple pie and everything else besides, and all of which is supposed to be achieved by 2030, which is just not going to happen. As you say, we're at the halfway point and you have a fascinating graph in the book, which demonstrates how far we are from achieving these uh, sustainable development goals. Um, but on those, you you have a really interesting passage in the book where you say the problem with these kinds of grand pronouncements from the UN and other organizations or politicians through history who say we will fix all these things in the next 20 or 30 years, it, it allows them to appear very virtuous in the moment, whereas the responsibility for doing all these things is usually offset to future generations or politicians who will come down the line later on. Um, so that's an interesting way of understanding this the SDGs, and I think a very accurate way of understanding them too. But I did want to ask you on that. You make a distinction between the Millennium Development Goals, which were uh, brought about by Kofi Annan, which you say have actually had a positive impact on on the poorer part of the world, and the Sustainable Development Goals, which are a bit more pie in the sky. Could you just outline why you think those two things are different, why the, uh, the first ones worked and the SDGs not so much? 
So the Millennium Development Goals is really the outlier. Uh, so, you know, through the centuries, we promised all kinds of things. Remember the League of Nations back in the uh, early 1920s? It promised a world without war. And then, you know, we had the Second World War. Uh, we've had a lot of not very successful promises. We, uh, the UN has uh, uh, at least promised uh, some 20 times to get everybody into schools. Uh, and and failed miserably from 1950 to 2000. So uh, the the honest answer is mostly we made these promises. You just said you know politicians get to say uh, we're virtuous, but it doesn't actually result in anything. The Millennium Development Goals were different. Um, I think we we just came out of the uh, uh, the Cold War. There is a uh, sort of a, a willingness to spend more money on you know doing good in the rest of the world. We didn't have to spend as much money on military. Uh, there was a sense now we sort of fixed the world. And so the UN, and that was, as you mentioned, really Kofi Annan and a few other guys. They were all guys in a back room in the UN who set up these targets. Uh, uh, and uh, what they basically said was we should half the people in poverty. We should have the number of people in hunger. We should uh, get all kids in school. We should get moms uh, to die less, uh, uh, children or newborns uh, to die less. And we should get clean drinking water and sanitation. There's a little bit else, but that was pretty much it. It was a very simple, straightforward uh, set of promises. And everybody sort of said, yes, we should do that. That's a good idea. Uh, again, we spent more money on it. We had more money. And we didn't manage to do all of it. And, and again, remember, we actually did have poverty. Uh, but that was not mostly because the UN decided. So that was because China got immensely rich. Uh, but, you know, uh, there were certainly some things where we definitely did make a difference. One good example is uh, in child death uh, in 1990, about 12 million kids died each year uh, below the age of five. 12 million kids, that's just an unfathomably large number. And, you know, these are 12 million tragedies times all the family members and everything else. It's just a terrible thing. By 2015, we had half that to six million kids. That's still way too many, but it's a much better world. And, and remember, the, the, uh, uh, the cohorts is about the same size. So it really is a dramatic reduction. We would have expected almost 12 million kids to die each year. Only 6 million kids actually died. That means 6 million kids who didn't die each and every year. That's a fantastic outcome. And again, some of it would have happened even with no Millennium Development Goals because we got richer, because China got richer, because we have better technology. But uh, certainly, you know, some two or three million kids, that was because of the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. So setting clear and simple targets do actually matter. It does pull people out of poverty. It does stop people uh, from dying. It does make for a better world. Uh, and, and if you promise a little bit, you can actually focus on that. If you promise everything, yeah, if you have 169 promises, which is what the uh, sustainable development goals are, you have really no priorities. And, and so what happened was, and I get this sort of psychologically, it felt wrong that it was just Kofi Annan, a few guys in a back room in the UN who set these targets. Uh, so the next set of targets, the ones that we have right now, uh, the UN said, all right, we want everybody in and we want to hear from everyone. What do you think we should uh, set priorities? And nobody wanted to say no to anything. Uh, and so we ended up with you know just uh, a, a totally, totally uh, implausible list of, of, of targets. It's so long, I can't remember it. And even the people who just do their work on the SDGs can't. 
you know, uh, when I meet people who are saying, oh, you know, my organization's uh, thing is in the SDGs. And I'm like, good for you, but so is everyone else's. You know, there's literally nothing in there that's not in there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think you're uh, in the book, you make a very a point that really leapt out at me in, in relation to the reduction of child mortality since 1990. We say this means that, you know, if, if, if it's been cut down to 6 million, which as you say is still too many, but it does mean that there are 12 million parents out there, the population, same size as the population of Belgium, whose kids are not dying and they might otherwise have died. And that is a great gain. That's a great step forward. And the question of how we bring these great step forwards about, I think is a very important one. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of your proposals then in a bit more detail. Um, I don't want to go through all 12 of them. We've got to leave something for the reader to discover for him or herself. But I do want to touch on a few of them. And you kick off with tuberculosis and the need to eradicate tuberculosis. And I'm glad you kicked off with that because it is something that I, I'm i often struck when I read something on TB. I often think to myself, how is it possible that this disease is still killing vast numbers of human beings? You point out in the book that there was a a tsunami of death around the whole world from TB for centuries. And you have this extraordinary uh, uh, fact that over the, there's one study that says over the past 200 years, tuberculosis caused more deaths than smallpox, malaria, the plague, influenza, cholera, and AIDS combined. And it was a great killer in the Western world for centuries, for a very long time. Many, many people died from tuberculosis. But now we know how to cure it. And it's very rare that people in the West die from tuberculosis. Very, very rare indeed. Whereas around the world, 1.4 million lives are claimed by TB each year. So um, give us a sense of why you thought it was important to start with that goal, getting rid of that disease, and what you think are some of the problems which, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, a, a greater symbol of the, the lingering inequality. You do talk about how global inequality has improved but the lingering inequality between nations is surely demonstrated by the fact that you and I will never die from TB, but many people around the world will. Well, it's a great question. And, and again, I should just say, I, they're listed in a random order. We really love our 12 solutions equally, uh, but you, you have to start somewhere. And, and I guess the reason why is exactly as you point out, TB used to kill lots and lots of people in the rich world. So every fourth death in the uh, 1800s was from TB. Uh, yeah, pretty much uh, all the famous people from the 1800s, good chance they died from TB. Uh, Sabine and uh, Moulin Rouge died from TB. Yeah, that was a fictional character, but still. So the, the, the idea here is this was an enormous issue in the rich world. Uh, we sent people to sanatoria. We didn't know what to do. It was a terrible disease that swept over uh, Europe and North America. And then we got antibiotics and we basically cured it. And so... We've stopped caring all that much about TB. And yeah, it makes sense. But it just didn't happen in the poor part of the world. So in India, for instance, in, uh, just around their uh, independence, uh, they estimate it was probably their biggest disease, which was killing half a million people each year uh, in uh, 1946. Uh, terrible disease. They have to do something about it. They have been trying so hard. They've been trying so many different things. Uh, so they've actually reduced uh, the uh, death per 100,000 by about a factor of four. Uh, but India, as you know, has also grown by a factor of four. So last year, uh, or in 2021, uh, World Health Organization estimate there was still half a million people dying from TB in India. 
And there is a lot of different places where TB is still a huge problem. Now, TB is the biggest problem in India, but it's also uh, the leading killer in South Africa and many other places. And this is fairly simple to do. The reason why it doesn't happen is because these are often voiceless people. These will be people in shanty towns or, uh, you know, uh, uh, in migrant towns or in mining communities or in prison communities. These are people, you know, again, rich people in the poor world don't die from tuberculosis either. But there's still 1.4 million people who die. And we know how to fix it. It's two things. First, you need to make sure that people actually keep taking their medication. Uh, unlike most other things that you take your medication for, you actually have to take antibiotics for half a year, four months or half a year. That's a long time. Remember, if you your doctor gives you like two weeks, you have to take uh, uh, pills. Once you get better, it's sort of, oh, you start forgetting, right? Uh, but you, know, you might actually manage to get through two weeks. But try to do this for half a year. There's a lot of different ways you do this. You gamify it. You get people on apps. You make sure that you, know, you go to tuberculosis anonymous kind of thing and, and you uh, say, yes, I, I took my medication all, all through last week. Uh, you, you auction off uh, juice cartons and stuff like that. It's, it, it sounds a little silly. But if you actually need to get six or seven or perhaps even 10 million people through taking all their medications for half a year, you need these kinds of things. And we know they work. They cost more money, but it's not certainly out of the ordinary. And we could do a huge impact on that. If you don't make people take their medication, if they stop in the middle, there's a good chance that you'll develop multidrug-resistant TB. And that's, of course, much worse and it'll actually harm a lot more people. This, of course, is one of the main reasons why we want to actually help people take their medication. It's not just to save them, but it's also to save all the other people that come uh, after them that will not have to have uh, TB and perhaps not die from TB. The other part is that there's a lot of undiscovered TB. So we uh, find about 7 million people with TB every year, but about 11 or 12 million people actually get it. We estimate this is model estimate. Uh, and the reason why we don't find them is because there's a lot of stigma involved in getting TB. So in, in Kenya, for instance, a, a quarter of everyone who gets TB also get divorced. Uh, because you know, their wife or, or, or uh, husband don't want to be married to someone with TB. You lose your job. You lose your friends. Uh, it has a lot of other implications. And you know, it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And that's why people will go to the doctor and hope that they don't get, uh, yes, you have TB. And so if you go to a private doctor, the doctor is likely to know this and perhaps you know, be sort of inclined to say, no, that just that sounds like a cold. Here's some Vicks. Uh, you know, so we actually end up in a situation where we don't test everyone. So Bangladesh, for instance, has one good example. They have uh, old women that go out and they have they all, uh, you know, typically they're uh, widows. Uh, and so they this is also a way for them to keep in touch. So they have like 15 families they're in charge of. They go around and say, hey, has anyone been coughing for the last three weeks? And, and then, you know, make sure that they actually get to uh, get diagnosed. We need to diagnose the migrant uh, locations as well. The total cost of this, this is something we know how to do, would be in the order of $6 billion. But if we spend that $6 billion, and remember, again, the world has promised this, but they've promised a lot of things. If we actually spent those $6 billion, we could save over the, this decade about 600,000 people each and every year. Uh, but in the longer run, we could avoid about a million uh, cases of TB. We can't get rid of all TB uh, because we don't quite know how to do that, but we could get rid of most of it 
And this would be a fantastic thing. Again, just like you said, you know, with all the kids not dying, imagine all the parents not dying uh, and leaving their kids with one parent or no parent. Hello, everyone. It's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. I just want to let you all know that there are still a few signed copies left of Brendan's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto. And the only way to get your hands on one of them is by donating £50 or more to Spiked. You'll be able to secure a signed copy of a brilliant book. Plus, you'll be supporting our work here at Spiked at the same time. You'll also get a whole year's access to Spiked supporters, our online donor community. Membership is usually £50 for the year anyway. So all in all, it's a hell of a deal. To make your donation, claim your signed copy and claim your Spiked supporters membership, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. And now on with the show. Absolutely. And um, as I was reading the chapter on tuberculosis, it, it did strike me that you, you described very well the problems that people face in terms of uh, taking these drugs. So as you say, you have to take them for four to six months, which is a big ask, especially if someone is already poor, has lots of other things to do, is under pre- the pressures of poverty and so on may not have a convenient place to store drugs, may not have a convenient way to get to the doctor to get more drugs. I mean, there are all of these kinds of additional problems. So that can be difficult. And then also, as you say, the drug can be very costly, which is precisely why the the kind of investment you're proposing is needed and would be very positive. Um, But I wonder if there's a couple of other factors too. I did want to ask you why you think certain diseases touch the public imagination more than others. So if you look at AIDS, for example, uh, the deaths, the number of deaths globally from HIV related illnesses are lower. I mean, it's terrible, but they are lower than the deaths from tuberculosis. But one disease touches the imagination, especially among celebrities and um, the virtuous of the West and people who, you know, sometimes in a very well-meaning way want to make an impact on poorer people's lives. AIDS campaigning was all the rage for a very long time. It still is in many ways, whereas tuberculosis is not very often discussed. It's not a fashionable disease, if, if we want to put it as crudely as that. Why do you think that happens? And, and what's a way that we can get around those kinds of, uh, the way in which diseases are judged in a slightly peculiar fashion in terms of what's worth our attention? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think the short answer is, uh, there's a number of factors. One is, uh, back when HIV started, we didn't know how fast it would spread. It might actually really spread to everyone. There was a, a sense in which this could hurt us all. And, and that, of course, also goes to if it hurts rich people in the rich countries, we'll do a lot more to figure this out, which you know, makes sense. Look, uh, you know, it's, it's not unreasonable to say that we, want, we spend most of our health money in rich countries. Rich countries spend most on rich countries. Uh, but that was certainly one part of it. So, And it was also this uh, sense of we don't know how far this will go, so we better you know, be careful. A little bit like we were with COVID, uh, you know, you're much more worried about this thing that could potentially explode. Whereas, whereas TB, I mean, we've been there. <laughs> it's it's an old disease. It's hundreds of years old. Uh, they they used to have in old Egypt. We kind of know how how this works. So so uh, uh, you know, it's it's just an old hat, if you will. And then very very clearly, there's an issue of saying. If there's nobody in the West who gets it, then it doesn't really show up, certainly in the global media landscape. Uh, There's one final thing, which is because uh, HIV leaves you HIV positive for life. That means you can't really escape it. So you might as well get into, you know, uh, campaigning and saying we need to do something about HIV. 
But tuberculosis, you can get cured, and then you don't have tuberculosis. So what happens is the people who've had TB, once they're cured, they start talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, TB is not very terrible, you know, not, not an important disease. I know I've never had it, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Uh, and, and so you have this, this sense that it doesn't really become a big issue. Nobody wants to be seen to be pushing it because I, I, did, I certainly didn't have this terrible disease. Uh, and, and so in some sense, and I think this is one of the, the whole points of, of my book and what we're arguing for, we're sort of arguing for all the boring or you know, non-sexy or uh, non-great PR problems, the ones that just happen to have enormous costs, but fairly simple solutions. So again, for about $6 billion, you can save so many lives that each dollar will deliver $46 of social benefits. And so we're simply, we've collected a book of all the things where you can spend a dollar or you spend a pound or spend a euro, and you can do $46 or 46 euros or 46 pounds worth of good. Uh, and the whole book only contains these things that do more than $15 uh, worth of good for every dollar spent. So uh, I want to ask you about another one of those things now, which is education. And um, I found the chapter on education really interesting because it it articulated something that I'd been thinking about and couldn't quite put into words. You have this interesting take where you say that one of the problems with, because we hear about the necessity of education in the developing world all the time, uh, especially the importance of education for girls. I mean, this is a great talking point. And we have things like comic relief in the UK, which are very often designed to raise money for education in the developing world, especially for girls and so on. So that is something that people are conscious of and concerned about. But you have this interesting uh, position where you say one of the problems with our investment in the educational sphere in the poorer parts of the world is that we invest in schools, but not in learning. And so you have the erection of schools and buildings in all parts of Africa, for example, in rural, very poor rural communities will sometimes get a new school building. But you make the argument that that's good. But the question of what's been taught in those schools or what learning is taking place tends to be a secondary consideration if it's considered at all. So could you just explain what you mean by that and how your policy proposal would uh, bring about learning as well as just a school in a community? Yes. So so this this actually goes to show both that it's not about you know the topic. Uh, it's not, you know, everybody agrees that education is important, but it's about what specific policy are you going to do to improve learning? Uh, so there's actually a lot of things. So the World Bank has uh, a, a sort of huge compendium of all the things that we've studied uh, throughout the last 50 years, what works and what doesn't. And unfortunately, in education, most of the stuff that you want to do in education, there's no evidence actually works. Uh, and quite a bit of it we know doesn't work. And then there's a few things that actually really work well. And so what we did was we asked a lot of our uh, uh, education economists, what are the best ways to spend money on education? They all said these two things that we're basically advocating, namely teaching at the right level and uh, uh, structured teacher plans. So basically help the students learn better and help the teachers teach better. Uh, but before I, I get into that, let me just tell you one great example of how not to do it, uh, because that that sort of gives you the setup. Uh, again, as you say, uh, because there's actually in, in quite a few countries, there'll be a lot more kids uh, in, through school age. You will need to build more schools. But uh, so you, you can't get out of that. 
but we should just recognize this is not actually the way that we make education better. And I don't think we have a good sense of how dire the problem is. So for the last uh, you know, 50 years, we've worried about getting kids into school. We just thought, you know, if we just get them into school, that's great. And and it's certainly better than not having them in school. Uh, but they're learning very, very little in there. So it's estimated that while we have technically uh, not eradicated, but mostly eradicated illiteracy, we've not actually created kids who can read and write and understand. Uh, so one good test, I show that, share that in the book as well, is, uh, is this question that you ask 10-year-olds. So you actually ask them to read it. And it says, VJ has a red hat, blue shirt, and yellow shoes. What color is the hat? This is not hard, right? I mean, it's red. Uh, but, but unfortunately, 80% of 10-year-old kids in the poor half of the world, so the low and low middle income countries, cannot answer this question correctly. And, and there's a lot of other, I mean, they don't just rely on this one question, right? But the, but the fundamental point here is they can't piece together all these words. They can read the individual, you know, DJ, they can read the red, they can read the hat, but they can't make it into a sentence. That obviously means they're not very helped by knowing technically how to read unless they can actually read. And we need to get them to doing that. The big problem in most uh, schools is that you have, say, all the 12-year-olds in one grade. You have all the 13-year-olds in one grade and so on. That means if they're all pretty much in the same level, which they often will be in rich countries, that's fine because the teacher will just teach them at that level. But in many countries in the poor part of the world, they're all over the place. So you know, some of these kids are far ahead and incredibly bored. Many of these kids have no clue what's going on and you know, need much, much more help. The teachers can only do one thing. They can only teach at one level. But in reality, they should teach for each one of these kids. Say there are 50 kids in the school, in the class, they need to teach each one of those kids at his or her own level. There's no way one teacher can do that. But there is a solution. If you put these kids one hour a day in front of a tablet with educational software, that software will teach the kid very quickly, find out exactly where this kid is. And then every day, you just do one hour a day. You will learn so much that by the end of the year, remember, seven of the eight hours, you still have the same old boring school. But one hour a day, you actually learn a lot of stuff because of the tablet. Over one year, this student will, on average, learn as much as he or she would normally have learned in three years. The cost is $21 per kid per year. And remember, we include that we're assuming some of these tablets are going to get stolen. Some of the teachers won't do it right. Some of the kids won't, you know, there's going to be corruption. There's going to be standard sort of incompetence, all that stuff. So this is real world outcomes. This is stuff that's already been trialed in a lot of different countries, $21. And then you will create benefits that are worth basically in the sense that this kid will go out when he or she becomes adult. She will be more productive. That means she'll have a higher income. That means she'll help make her whole society richer. That total benefit in today's money is worth about $1,000. Spending $21 to do $1,000 is a great deal. And that's the basic point. So you know, globally, we find for, for, uh, for most of the poor half of the world, it'll cost about uh, $10 billion. But the benefits will be more than $600 billion in, in net benefits. So we can do this fairly simple thing and then make countries enormously much richer because 
their kids learn more and become more productive. That's that's just a no-brainer. Yeah, it is a no-brainer. And um, there was one um, fact in the education chapter that really leapt out at me and made me feel quite sad, actually, and, and uh, a bit depressed about it, which is that there was a study of African primary school teachers which found that almost one in three of their maths teachers could not do double-digit subtraction. Now, that's not a judgment on these teachers. They will have had a poor education themselves. They will be under extraordinary pressure. Um, I'm sure they do a good job with the skills that they have in the buildings that they have. But that is an indicator, isn't it, of how serious the problem of learning is. And I wanted to ask you if if the kind of discussion that you outlined in this book, which is that um, there's been investment at schools, but not in learning, are those kinds of discussions being had at the highest levels? Are they being had amongst UN officials, amongst people who oversee the uh, sustainable development goals, amongst those who talk about girls' education in particular and the importance of it? Because very often what we see are those kind of slightly happy, clappy videos of a school going up and children traipsing to it, looking very happy. And as you say, building schools, incredibly important. But are those discussions taking place about um, the fact that some teachers can't do the do the basics, unfortunately, and the question of what's being learned inside those buildings? Uh, a little bit, but not nearly enough. And And this goes back to the whole idea of saying everyone wants to just say we should do all good things. Uh, so we will end up in, in an education space. I, I think most people will say we should absolutely do more teaching at the right level, which is the uh, the tablet thing. We should also, as you point out, a lot of these teachers are only marginally better than the kids that they uh, that they teach. And, and so they really need all the help. And this is partly because, you know, uh, they don't get paid very well. Uh, and, and so they need all the help they can get. One of the things we also emphasize is getting more structured teacher plans. If you have semi-structured teacher plans, you walk the teacher through what they should be teaching each week. Uh, and you give them plans for each one of the weeks. You send out text messages so that they know, oh, this week we have to cover this, this, and this. It'll simply make them better teachers. Uh, and so the kids will learn more. And if you do this, it'll cost about $9 per student per year. But the benefit will be that it'll feel like these kids almost learn two years of learning for one year of school. So again, phenomenal investment. We should do these things. But most people like to say, oh, we should do that. We should do the structured teacher plans, the learning at the right level, but we should also build more schools and we should also get you know, lower class ratios and have more money to teachers. So Indonesia did uh, a fantastic uh, thing back, or actually not all that fantastic, but they had very well intentioned. They wanted to spend twice as much money on education uh, in the early 2000s. They actually put it in their constitution, so they ended up hiring more than a million extra teachers. Uh, they doubled uh, the, the salaries of, of individual teachers. Uh, and the way it was done, it was uh, done in different regions at different times. So you could actually do a, a pseudo-randomized controlled trial study on it. And, and that study is called, it's a very famous study, it's called uh, Double for Nothing. Uh, because the point is that, unfortunately, uh, Indonesia ended up spending twice as much money on education, and there's no impact on learning. Uh, they, they did make happier teachers, you know, because you get more money, uh, which is good, but presumably not the main thing we want out of the educational system. So again, the point here is people will tend to say, oh, we should do all good things. Whereas we're the guys who are saying, well, well you know, actually, you should do the very best things, at least do the very best things first. 
And then, you know, if there's more money left over, hey, please, you know, spend it on all the stuff that'll only do marginally more good. Look, I'm not against, you know, it, it's probably good to have teachers that are paid more and they'll probably be happy and that means they can take more time. It's unlikely that it won't have some good effects, but we just know this is not the first way that you help make kids learn better. And so again, that's why the book is called Best Things First. It really is about saying, we should do all things, absolutely all good things, but let's do the best things first. Uh, right. I want to talk to you about one of my favorite chapters in the book, which is on your uh, policy proposal for more agricultural R&D. And you call for more food and cheaper food, which is quite a, a countercultural thing to argue for these days. I mean, the amount of moaning I see in liberal media outlets like The Guardian, for example, about the scourge of cheap food and everything's getting too cheap and the problem of agriculture. I, I, I think barely a week goes by when I don't read a column by someone saying that the real problem today in relation to climate change is agriculture and we need to think about how to fix it and shrink it. So this, I found this a very positive chapter in, an inspiring one too and you say that it's time for a second green revolution and the basis for this chapter is that the problem of human hunger has improved enormously over the past couple of centuries the the majority of us used to live in a state of hunger or close to a state of hunger and you say now that it's around 768 million people who experience the problems of hunger which is still far too many um one slightly depressing note is that you point out that over the past six or seven years, the problem of malnourishment has got slightly worse, uh, including as a result of the COVID pandemic, when there was a bit of a downward blip in terms of our attempts to improve the problems of malnourishment and the problems of hunger. Uh, but just outline for us what you think needs to happen with agriculture, how it can be boosted in order to produce more food and cheaper food that would alleviate these problems of hunger that still exist. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, absolutely, hunger has gone down dramatically. I found this statistic that I didn't know existed before. Uh, League of Nations back in 1928, so about 100 years ago, estimated two-thirds of humanity lived in permanent state of hunger. That's just outstanding, and, and today it's down below 10%. So it's fantastic development. This is to a large extent because there's much more food, much cheaper food, and we should be very happy about that. Now, the fact that people can nowadays start talking about, oh, maybe it's too cheap and maybe there's too much and maybe pe people eat badly. And that's absolutely true that there is you know, a huge obesity problem in the world. Uh, but, you know, that's mostly uh, uh, an issue for rich people and for rich people, even in poor countries. Uh, still, the vast issue for people is that they can't get enough food. These are the 750 million people you were talking about that are uh, you know, undernourished, and they need cheaper, better, more food. Uh, look, there's a lot of different ways that you can do this, and, and sort of the standard argument would be, well, we need to get more food to these people. Uh, but the problem is with that argument is that that's incredibly costly to actually buy up the food send it and distribute it to these people. There's a huge amount of corruption that will go on with it. So India has been doing this for, for many, many years. Uh, they, they will hand out uh, extra food for really poor people. But the problem, of course, is not only is it hugely corrupt, you also sell the worst kind of food to these people because it's you know big state corporations that buy it up. They're mostly interested in how many calories do they have, and so you end up. Uh, I, I met with uh, Gandhi, who, who was the uh, the federal minister for uh, uh, for women and children, and she was saying 
trying to eat one of these. This is terrible. You know, people don't actually want it. They, you know, they, they take it because it's free, uh, but they'll only, you know, eat it if they're really, really up creek, uh, which is probably not a good way to spend money. So it turns out that this is a very ineffective way. But we have already discovered a very, very effective way, which was the Green Revolution back in the 1960s, uh, spearheaded by uh, a guy called Norman Borlaug, who basically created these seeds for wheat, maize, uh, and, uh, and rice that have shorter stocks so that you can have more grain they can carry more grain and they don't have to spend as much energy to put into the stocks. So you actually get much, much more grain. That means you get more per hectare, more per acre. And that basically means you plant a new seed, you get much more food. That's a fantastic thing. I don't know how correct this is, but he's been uh, addressed. He got the Nobel Peace Prize for it in 1970. He's the only guy I know who could put on his CV uh, that he saved a billion people from dying. That's a pretty cool thing to be able to put on your CV. But this was mostly for the rich and the upper middle income countries. This was for wheat, rice, and uh, maize, but not for sorghum and cassava and all these other things that are grown in poor countries. We need to do the same thing for these poor countries, because if you can make sorghum that is more effective, then you don't have to distribute it out uh, with lots and lots of food. People will want to have that new seed, plant it, and grow more food. And what will happen then is, and we know this very, very well, if you spend more money on research and development into this, it has a very predictable outcome of you getting better yields. Not fantastic. You know, it's not, we're not talking about suddenly you'll have 50% more yields, but it'll be instead of 1% more per year, it'll be 1.5% more per year. But over 50 years, that turned into a huge deal. So what you will have is farmers will grow more food, which is great for farmers, but the price for each one of these foods will actually be lower, which is great for consumers. So both farmers and consumers will win. And because research is incredibly cheap compared to the huge outputs of more food that will lead to in the long run, that's just good for everyone. So we estimate for about $5 billion, which is not nothing, but again, $5 billion, you can actually end up with $180 billion more in agricultural output and the value. You could actually, uh, we believe this is probably vastly underestimated, but at least for every pound spent, you will do 33 pounds of good. How amazing is that? So again, this is the smart solution to nutrition. It's not to say that we shouldn't also do other things, but this is the one that we should do first. Spiked couldn't do what we do without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself. Those of you who donate £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are eligible to become a Spiked supporter. Being a Spiked supporter gives you access to a whole range of perks, including discounted or free tickets to all our events, discounts in our shop, and the ability to bookmark and comment on articles. So become a Spike supporter today by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Reading the chapter on agriculture and the need for a second green revolution, I did start thinking about the problem of virtue. Uh, <laughs> virtue is a good thing, but the problem of um, performative virtue, I guess, because you, you do talk in that chapter about the sustainable development goals include the goal of um, fortifying agricultural systems, uh, improving productivity in agriculture, 
both of which are things that we would agree with. But then lots of other ideas get attached to the SDGs uh, goal on agriculture as well. So they say it has to be done in a way that improves land and soil quality, that helps communities adapt to climate change problems and extreme weather and other disasters. And so what you have in the SDG on agriculture and the need to improve agricultural productivity is lots of other concerns being put onto it as well. And this comes back to your point that the problem of everything-ism, people want to do everything rather than focus on what needs to be done and what can be done right now. Do you think there's there's an issue where often we look at the developing world through I guess, an overly moral lens in a way where we think not only are there things that we can do together to improve the living standards and the everyday lives of uh, the poorer part of the world, but we also feel the need to impose moral categories on what they do in terms of, you know, well, you can improve your agriculture, but you've got to make sure you do it in a very super sustainable way, that you're eco-friendly, that you don't do anything that we would find offensive from our perspective. Um is part of your mission with this book to strip some of that stuff away, not necessarily because you don't think those things are important, but in order to accentuate the most important thing and the question of how we can achieve that in fairly short order? Uh, there, there is definitely that sense in which uh, the sustainable development goals have become everything that everyone thinks is important. So, you know, the, the obvious argument is uh, we, we should also have more organic food. Uh, and, and that's also one of the goals in there. And, and look, for rich countries, that is a potentially useful conversation. This, is, this will take the total discussion into a very different kind of field. Uh, but, but, but the main point here is to say that certainly on, on current technology, you just can't feed most people on, uh, on organic foods. Uh, just to give you one pointer, uh, about half of all food today is grown with synthetic fertilizer. That means fertilizer made mostly from gas, uh, natural gas. And so if you don't want to do that, which organic can't do, uh, you just don't have a way to, you know, uh, uh, sustain 4 billion people's lives. Uh, and as Norman Borlaug loved to say, because he was, he was also very skeptical of organic farming. He's dead now, but he, he used to say, uh, you know, I, I don't see a couple billion volunteers to leave the planet to just say, all right, I'm not going to actually ask for food. I'm just going to go quietly into the night. That's just not an option. And, and so, again, we need to have a sense of what are the top priorities. And very clearly, if you're hungry, it is to get more food. And that's typically more food that's cheaper so you can actually afford it. Now, there's lots of other things. We should also make people richer, as we talked about with education or with free trade and many other things. We should also make sure people don't die. So, you know, their parents don't die and they can't feed their kids. All these kinds of things from tuberculosis. So there's a lot of different things that we can do and we should do. But we have to be very careful that we in the rich world don't put uh, these, these strict restrictions on saying, no, but it has to be organic before you've gotten enough food. Or as you said, well, it can't actually be this cheap. Well, maybe you can have that view if you live in England, uh, but it seems perhaps a little unreasonable to have that view if you live in Malawi. Uh, and, and so again, if we want to do good in the world, let's do best things first. Let's do the things that will actually have a huge impact. And then, yes, let's also recognize that this doesn't mean we've solved all problems. But we've solved some of the really, really important ones at low cost first. And I think that both more realistic, but also, of course, morally hugely valuable. Yeah, there, there was an African 
activist, a, th- a food activist, I can't remember her name, but she said a few years ago, look, it's all very nice that Westerners are having these tortured discussions about the problem of genetically modified foods, but we just want to eat. Thank you very much. So we'll we'll carry on doing what we think needs to be done, which I think is an absolutely fair point. Um, Bjorn, you also have great chapters on malaria, fixing the curse of malaria in Africa, on specifically on nutrition as well and how to improve nutrition, on childhood vaccination, which I think was a, an incredibly important chapter, especially in light of the growth, sadly, of um, vaccine scepticism over the past couple of years uh, in the wake of the COVID pandemic. But I want to go forward a little bit to two later chapters to just to finish the discussion with, because these these ones are a bit more political. So there's a chapter on the need for more free trade. And you you say, basically, you want to make free trade fashionable again. I think you should put that on a cap and sell it. That might that could go down well with some people. Um, and then there's a chapter on the importance of highly skilled immigration. And in both of these chapters, what's interesting is that you acknowledge that these are potentially controversial areas. I mean, we I don't think anyone would find it controversial to say, let's eradicate tuberculosis or let's get rid of malaria or let's ensure that children don't die from hunger. I mean, there's no one who would find those controversial proposals, but you recognize that um, being pro-free trade and arguing that that is a useful way to in- increase the wealth of uh, uh, the poorer part of the world, you recognize that that could be a potentially controversial point in this day and age. So I want to ask you about that one first. And you will know that economic growth is not a particularly fashionable idea in, in Western circles at the moment. I mean, if you look at a figure like Greta Thunberg, for example, she has cheered to the rafters partly for saying we're addicted to growth. We need to ease ourselves off this addiction. We need to think about different ways to organize society. I've often thought that's a very luxurious position for a person to take. And it's usually only people in societies like ours who are able to take such a luxurious position. Whereas, as you argue very well, trade and growth are likely to benefit the poorer parts of the world enormously. So give us a sense of why you think more free trade would be beneficial for the poorer people of the world. So so again, uh, this is an economist looking at uh, uh, the work. Uh, so we worked with more than 100 of the world's top economists on all of these areas to try to say, where can you do more good for humanity? Uh, and, and so absolutely, economics is not the only thing. But again, it's a little easier to say that if you're rich. Uh, and, and certainly for most poor people, having more resources literally means the difference between starving and not starving, dying and not dying and access to these very basic things that will make life much, much better. Uh, so trade, we've known for a very long time, is a good thing. You, know, you do some things better than I do, and I do some things better than you do. If we trade, we can both do the thing we do best and then trade each other for those, uh, uh, for those things and both be better off. That was sort of the standard argument from uh, Adam Smith and onwards, and this is still true today. So everyone is better off if you trade on aggregate. But one of the things that I think economists have been uh, uh, too dismissive of is not everyone will be better with trade. And that's exactly the point that we tried to do. I think we were the first uh, academic paper. And again, all of these papers, all these chapters are actually period published in, in the Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis. Uh, and so the, the this paper on trade is as, as far as I know, uh, the first paper to actually try to estimate what's the downsides of trade as well. Yeah. Because we need to be honest about that. So if you and I trade, we're both going to be better off. But if we trade, 
uh, people in the rich world and the poor world, say Bangladesh, uh, the whole nations of UK and Bangladesh will be better off. Uh, but when you have a lot of the T-shirt sewn in Bangladesh, it means the guys who used to sew T-shirts in the UK are no longer better off. They're actually a lot worse off. Uh, now, obviously, eventually you will be reschooled. You'll have to find something else. But you will take a sure, a sure dive in your income uh, in short and medium term. There are real losers and, you know, sort of the, the fixed point of that has become the Rust Belt in the U.S. Uh, the, the ideas of these whole towns that produced stuff that when we open up to China and others basically got shifted to production in China. Uh, and so these people lo lost their jobs. Now, overall, the U.S. might actually have been better off, but clearly these people were not. And so we have to ask ourselves what are the costs and what are the benefits? We try to do that. We, so we look at what are the best empirical estimates of who will lose out and also who will gain. And the short answer is that in the rich world, and so we just looked at, at a world where we have 5% more trade. So we there's a lot of different ways you can do that with more uh, uh, trading relationships, with more free trade agreements. It could also be that shipping, for instance, get cheaper. So it's it, it's more cost effective to ship stuff around the world. So there's a lot of different ways. We're just looking analytically. If you open up trade for 5% more, how much better would that make world? And also how much worse would it make it? It turns out for the rich world, we will become about $8 trillion better off over the next 50 years. So we'll be much, much better off. But there will be significant number of people within our societies. So more than $1 trillion of damages or losses. That's a real loss. That means the basic benefit-cost ratio is about 7 to 1. So it's important to say for every one pound we lose from trade, we gain seven pounds. So there's enough to make sure that we also compensate these people. And we certainly should. We should re-educate them. We should make sure that they have more opportunities. And we should recognize that we need probably uh, a welfare system that can some somewhat incorporate them. We should acknowledge this. But it's probably overall a really good thing because we still end up much more uh, benefits than costs. But what we also need to recognize is this is fantastic for the world's poor because they have almost all of the benefits, but they have virtually none of the disbenefits. So fundamentally, opening up for more T-shirts sewn in Bangladesh doesn't mean you have people who lose out on T-shirts. You just have a lot more women who now get jobs working on T-shirts. So for the uh, low and lower middle income countries, it turns out that the benefit cost ratio is 96. So they actually get almost all benefits. So again, Free trade is good for the world. So we estimate for globally, it's probably $11 back in the dollar. But for the world's poor, it's amazing. It simply means they get almost all the benefits and very little of the, uh, of the costs. So again, free trade is good. And we have sort of allowed ourselves to think the Rust Belt is the only sort of indicator of what the free trade means. Yes, it's one indicator and it's a real issue. And it's something that we should be concerned about. But mostly, it's good even for the world's rich. And it's very, very good for the world's poor. And so, again, if you want to lift people out of poverty, if you want to get people to not be poor and actually come out of poverty, be richer, tr free trade is one of the, those ways. So, again, uh, an economist would say this is definitely one of the uh, 12 best things we should be doing. I think um, 
One of the things I like most about your book is that it doesn't feel like a sticking plaster on the problems facing the world's poor. And very often, um, some of the proposals put forward by well-minded people in Western circles, in NGOs and so on, who often emphasize aid more than more than trade um, and charity more than development and um, sustainability more than growth. I think that's an interesting contrast too. I think often they're what I find sometimes a little uh, grating about those proposals that it sometimes looks like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a problem rather than trying to think about how you can improve the fortunes of a people and a nation in order that they have the independence to, sort, to fix their own problems and to grow in the way that they want to grow. So it isn't one of the issues, and you do touch on this in the trade chapter, the importance of economic growth. I mean, that is a case that needs to be made remade, isn't it? Because I hear so often degrowth arguments, anti-growth arguments. And as as you and I know, it's a, it's a luxuriant position that people in the wealthy West can take. You know, uh, we've been through our industrial revolution 200 years ago. We're living through the benefits and the gains of that every single day. Um, so we're in a, a, a privileged position, but it is important, isn't it? it alongside all these uh, great proposals you have for eradicating this disease, eradicating that disease, improving uh, the health of mothers and children and so on. We do need to emphasize on the importance of growth in order to expand the wealth of the world and the poor world in particular, so that they can gain an independence in the way that our nations have. Yes. And it's it's in some way the constraints of what we're trying to do. We're We're saying, how can you spend extra money to do good for the world? And I'm not quite sure how you could spend extra money to, for instance, increase growth directly. But certainly we indicate there's ways that you could spend money, for instance, in accepting some loss from uh, from the rust belts uh, of the world in saying, let's have more free trade. And that's the point that we're making, that there are specific places where you can, uh, you know, you can incur fairly small cost and have amazing benefits. And again, surely we should get those on board first. So so in, in some sense, instead of making this into that more generalized and, and slightly antagonistic conversation, well, we should do degrowth or we should do growth or that kind of thing. No, it's just simply, shouldn't we do stuff that'll actually make the world's poor amazingly much better off at fairly low cost to us? I, I think maybe we should. So it becomes much simpler and, and, and more straightforward to have that conversation. And again, that's why I think uh, setting this up and saying, here are 12 amazing things we can do. And, and, and again, you know, I would love for the whole world to do all 12, uh, but I'm happy if you know, the world just does five of them or something. I don't know. You know that'd be amazing. Uh, so this is also more sort of a, this is an academics smorgasbord of, uh, of things you can do. Here's the buffet. You pick, but please pick these first. Yeah. Okay. I just have a quick question for you on the immigration chapter, not to stick with antagonistic issues, but you do recognize in that chapter that it's a politically divisive issue. It's become more divisive in recent years, in fact, for various reasons. Um, I've always had a pretty liberal approach to immigration. I've always been a fairly pro-immigration person. I I enjoyed this chapter, but I did have one question to put to you because I'm never quite sure how to approach this question myself. And you touch on it in this chapter. So we've just talked about how there will definitely be costs to free trade in relation to people in areas like the Rust Belt, and, and those costs have to be acknowledged. You also mentioned that there are costs to um, having freer migration uh, from the developing world. You say that it's one of the 
clearest ways in which people from the poor world can increase their income. They can move around the world. They can be more mobile. They can work in different parts of the world. They can send money home, which often has a positive impact on their communities and their families. But there is also the brain drain question as well and the problem of often the most skilled, the most intelligent, some of the best educated uh, uh, citizens of the poorer world having to go to England or Sweden or Germany or somewhere in order to work. How do you address that problem? And that's a, that's a clear cost, isn't it, of, one of, of this proposal and one that ought to be factored in, I suppose, into this discussion? Yes. So I, I think it's important to just take a step back. Uh, ec- economists like to say that the world is hugely misallocated because uh, uh, you know, people with the same skills in poor countries could make much, much more, could be much more productive in a rich country setting. Uh, so some of these very uh, uh, sort of theoretically uh, inclined economists are saying there are literally trillion dollar bills lying on, on the pavement. We should pick them up. We should just allow all immigration. And then the world would be you know, sort of 50 to 150% richer, which is just outstanding. It, it's just, you know, way more than anything else I'm talking about in the book. It's also fantastically unrealistic. Uh, because it means that you would have to have, you know, there's about what 700 million uh, in the working force in the uh, in the rich countries in the OCD, uh, and you'd have 2.4 billion people uh, workers moving to the rich West. Probably not a good idea for a lot of different reasons, but to a large extent also because it would lower the wages of rich people, which of course is why they would vote against it. Uh, you know, uh, gardeners would become more common and they would be able to procure a lower salary. Uh, and that's just simply makes it politically impossible. That's why we look just on skilled immigration, because typically people feel less concerned about that. If there's more doctors uh, to the NHS, that's actually seen as a good thing, typically. Uh, so it still has some problems. Uh, if you have huge amounts of doctors moving over, that could be a problem. Certainly a lot of doctors in the UK would probably feel somewhat uncomfortable with it. That's why we're also just looking at a 10% increase. Uh, This is something that means countries uh, that have lots of immigration, like Canada, uh, would probably have 10% of a higher number, which they would presumably be reasonably uh, accepting of, whereas countries that have little immigration would only have 10% of a very low number. So it has more of the political feasibility to it. But the main point that we're making is this tends to have good impacts for everyone. So it turns out that if you have skilled migration, highly skilled migrations of doctors, uh, engineers, other STEM workers, that would increase their wages dramatically. It would make them better off. They were part of the poor world. Now they're part of a richer world. And that means we have reduced uh, global inequality. That's a good thing uh, overall for every dollar spent. Uh, in terms of, of losses, there will be $20 of benefits. That's overall a good thing. We've made the world more effective. We've made the world more productive. Overall, that's a good thing. But, and as you say, it has a real cost. And you mentioned brain drain, which is a great example of that, that you basically have doctors moving from poor countries to rich countries. That means there are fewer doctors left in poor countries. That can't be a good thing. And that's actually, it's correct that that is a cost. But there are two things to it. If you open up the markets, it also means more people will want to become doctors because part of them 
will know that they can now go to the UK and elsewhere and uh, and secure a job. So you will actually end up with more doctors in the long run. The second part is, as you also mentioned, uh, these people, because they move their whole lives, will probably send back, we know that empirically, uh, a sub- significant amount of their income as uh, remittances. That is, of course, already included in the benefits, but it has uh, additional benefits in the sense that it means that those families who get the remittances will be more likely to invest more in health and in education. And that will more than outweigh the loss of brain drain. So overall, this is a good idea, even for poor countries, but not nearly as good as it is for rich countries. So it's still, there still is a, a, a sort of uh, unequal outcome of this. And that's in, inevitable. If you have 12 ideas. Not all of them are going to work equally well for everyone in all areas, but this is definitely one of those places where an economist would say, if you open up for more immigration, you will have a better outcome, but you have to be very careful to make sure that it doesn't become so big that people start rebelling against that. It feels like this is politically impossible. Again, we're simply offering the buffet of, uh, of options, and then people can pick and choose. I'm not saying you should choose this, but I'm saying if you choose for about a loss of about $2.8 billion a year, you can uh, end up with a benefit of more than $50 billion per year in benefits. That's a good outcome for the world, but you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a political decision at the end of the day. Okay, my final question for you. Um, on this buffet that you've laid out before us all, full of um, tasty ideas, fascinating ideas, and positive proposals, you, you make the case in the book that you hope that readers will exert some pressure on the political class to take these policy, these 12 ideas seriously, that billionaires, if they are going to invest in some issue in the world, that they might pick one of these 12 issues, and, and you make that case very well. Um, are you hoping that your book will contribute to, I guess, not just uh, philanthropy and wiser forms of investment in in the problems facing uh, the world, but also a cultural shift too? Because it does sometimes strike me that we sadly live in rather downbeat times. Human beings are often treated as a bit of a pox on the planet. Everything we do is bad. Uh, you know, we're a problem to be curbed rather than uh, a fascinating species whose energy should be unleashed. That's often how things are are presented. So do you hope that this book, because it is it because it does present things in a practical and positive way and in assertive humanistic fashion, will contribute to a kind of cultural shift in our understanding of what our species is capable of when we put our minds to it? I, I certainly hope so. So I was actually a little uh, worried when you started off the program and said that you found that there was a lot of problems in the world. And yes, there are. But, you know, this book's main message should be, and there's a lot of really smart solutions. Let's do those for very little money. And so I'm just going to give you the very basic sort of summary of the whole book, right? For $35 billion, we find if you add up all the costs for all these 12 things, it's $35 billion a year. That's not nothing, but you know, it's a couch change in the big scheme of things. And certainly for most of the things that we're talking about on a global scale, uh, spending $35 billion is certainly something we can afford. I, I make the comparison that's the increase in the spending on uh, on uh, cosmetics over the last two years uh, uh, globally, we can probably afford $35 billion. If we spend $35 billion, we can save 4.2 million lives each and every year, and we can make the poor world $1.1 trillion richer 
each and every year. That's almost $1 per person per day in the entire lower half of the world. How cool is that? So yes, this is absolutely about saying this is, this is a problem with not just one or two favorite problems that you hear a lot about in the press, but with lots and lots of problems, but also lots and lots of solutions. Some of these solutions are pretty ineffective. Some of them are amazingly effective. Let's do the effective ones first. And I think that's not just you know something that's obviously true, but it's also something that we can all agree on, which is absolutely fantastic in this very, very divisive age. You know, we all agree that spending a little money incredibly effectively to do good for humanity is probably something we ought to do. And then, yes, it's also a very optimistic message at the end of the day. This is a fantastic thing. It doesn't mean we fixed everything. As, as I also said, we're not actually going to eradicate tuberculosis because, you know, there's a lot of, we could get into a whole lot technical issue. But the fundamental point is we can dramatically reduce it. And that by itself is an incredible outcome. So this is not solutions to all the world problems, but this is a fix to some of the main issues that are very, very cheap, very, very effective, and will leave the world better off. It'll you know, get us all together and it'll actually be a very optimistic message. Jan Lomborg, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.